good afternoon. It is a, a joy and a pleasure to share the Word of God with you today. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, kind of getting the second half of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And as you're turning there, I need to confess that I've done two things that you're not supposed to do before you speak. One, um, I didn't get a good night's rest. It's not because I didn't go to bed on time. It's just because anytime I'm about to speak, I always wake up early thinking about what I'm going to say. Um, so that's one thing. I didn't get enough sleep. Number two, I had a really big lunch. Um, a really big lunch. My, uh, my mother-in-law loves to cook for us. We have lunch with, with my wife's parents uh, every Sunday or most Sundays. And um, she did not disappoint today. She has this, this dish called red chicken. It's she, she sautés the chicken with bread on it, like breading and flour on it with onions and all of that. And, you know, it's this red barbecue sauce that she then, you know, puts a ton in there. She bakes it in the oven, makes a ton of rice, uh, fresh, like called angel biscuits that she puts in a cast iron pan, and bakes them in the oven. And then, you know, we, we had a, a grandparent celebration of my little girl's birthday yesterday. So we had a lot of cake left over. And it just so happened that my wife was, you know, cutting the cake up uh, for dessert and, she didn't, she didn't realize that I'd already put her plate on the table, so she cut one. I was like, you know, honey, that, actually, that's not yours. That'll be mine. And she's like, oh, so she cut me another big slice. So I've got, I've got massive big lunch with even more sugar dessert on board right now. So uh, if I'm a little loopy, that, that'll be the, uh, the reason. So don't do those two things if you have to speak in public. Uh, get sleep and don't have a super huge lunch. Um, but we are in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 36, and I'm going to read that whole passage, um, and then we'll reference it here and there as we go. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, come to a very awesome moment where we can open up your word and consider its truth. And your word is truth. God, it's not just true, but it is the very source of truth for us. It's the very standard by which we know what is true and what is false. And Father, I pray that you would give us just a a sensitivity to your word right now. God, that our hearts would be open, our ears would be open, our eyes would be open. God, that we might love your word, that we might hear your spirit speaking through the word, and that we might see your glory and the glory of Jesus shining in your word. Lord, as we consider these few verses, illuminate our hearts to your word. God, that we might see all that you would have us see. And that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus better. And Father, we ask that if there's any here today who has not trusted in Jesus, that through this message, through discussing and preaching and and proclaiming our Savior, that faith might be awakened and repentance might be awakened. And they would come and trust Jesus today. Lord, we commit our hearts, our minds, our lives into your hands for these few moments. Have your way for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing about me when it comes to to preaching and and studying is I, I can tend to be OCD when it comes to structure and outlines. Um, I can probably go overboard, uh, but it's just how my mind works. Um, and so I look at our text today, and I'm I'm, I'm putting it in in a bigger a bit a bigger context of the passage that we heard last week and the passage that Lord Will and Mark will preach on um, next Sunday. So last Sunday, in verses, especially in verses 14 through 21, uh, we, we saw Peter explaining the miracle of tongues. Because, you know, it's the day of Pentecost, uh, the, the, the Spirit comes, there's this mighty rushing wind, and they're starting to speak in other languages, and, and the people in Jerusalem from all these other nations who, who, who were there, they, they hear the apostles speaking in their native language. Um, it's not just like generically, but very specifically in a way that they could understand. Like if, if English was there, it wasn't. But if English was there, for me, I wouldn't hear somebody speaking in the Queen's English. I'd be hearing good old American English. That's how specific this was. They were hearing them in a way that they could understand. And so Peter took time to give an explanation of this miracle because the people come, they're like, what is going on? So Peter explains it. So we could say, especially verses 14 through 21, was Peter's explanation of the miracle. The main emphasis today that we're going to be looking at in our passage is Peter's proclamation of the Messiah. Because after explaining the miracle, his whole point was not to just talk about the miracle of tongues, but to discuss, proclaim, and call people to respond to Jesus the Messiah. And so the last point, if you wanted to have a third point, which I'm just going to briefly mention at the end, in verse 37 through 41, is Peter's exhortation to the people. So there's an explanation of the miracle, his proclamation of the Messiah, and his exhortation to the people. Now, as we wade into this, let's, let's go back to last week just a little bit as, by way of reminder, by way of review. Um, one of the big points that, that Mark brought out was that the, that the gift of tongues was, in essence, 
um, a, a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You remember that, that story again? The God had commanded people to disperse and spread throughout the earth and fill it. And they weren't doing that. They were huddled together in one place, building this tower, wanting to make a name for themselves and not obey God. And so God comes down, he confuses the languages, and by that they disperse out. And so people were separated by this divine act of judgment to where they couldn't understand everybody except the few people that spoke the language they did. And that was the the emergence of the different languages in the world. But now that division is being reversed. We have a message in the gospel that transcends language and culture. It transcends language and culture. No matter where you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your cultural background, we all have a need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have the same problem. We are in our sin. We are separated from God and under his wrath, rightly, because of our rebellion against him. And the gospel is a message that touches each one of us on that most pressing need, that need to be right with God. And it's not a main point, but it is, a, it is a, an application. When we think of a message transcending language and culture, I think it's a big argument there for the necessity of good Bible translation. Um, why do we, we take the time to translate the Bible into other languages? Because everybody in every language needs the message in their language. Um, what happened at Pentecost is they were hearing it in the language they spoke. And so since none of us are going to have that gift to speak in other languages, we need to translate the Bible into the languages that people speak. Like I said, it's not the main point, but it is an important one to consider. So the gift of tongues is a reversal of the Tower of Babel and other things, but also the miracle of tongues is subservient to the message of the gospel. That's really what starts to transition us into our text today when I say the miracle of tongues is subservient to the message of the gospel. The blazing center of Acts 2, the the most important thing that we need to see and take away is not the miracle of speaking in other languages, but the clear and pointed preaching of the gospel of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Peter has explained the nature, it's what he spent the first part of his sermon doing, the nature of this attention-drawing miracle, and now he's moving from explaining this miracle to proclaiming the Messiah. And that's the most important thing. So in proclaiming the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Peter gives us three points of emphasis. I'll mention these now and I'll mention them again as we go. The first point is that Jesus was real and historical. The second point was that Jesus was crucified and killed. And the third point was that Jesus was resurrected and exalted. And I'll mention those as we go. As we think about this first one, especially from verses 22 through 23. Jesus was real and historical. Look again at the text. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless Men, And I stress this point that Jesus was real and historical because there is a a teaching out there that you may or may not have encountered in name, but you likely will encounter it at some point in its substance. 
Um, it's, a, it's a teaching, it's a theology that came from a man named Karl Barth, who was the father of what's been called neo-orthodoxy. It's a new orthodoxy, new, an, a new way of understanding right Christian doctrine. And according to Karl Barth um, and his viewpoint, it's not the events of history themselves that are significant, but whether or not they're important to you. And Karl Barth would look at a text like this that we're looking at, the, the man Jesus of Nazareth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and he would say, you know, it ultimately doesn't matter whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead, just so long as it's significant to you. That is a dangerous, deadly way to think about Jesus. Bart himself actually believed it was true, but he introduced a way of thinking that says real history doesn't matter, just so long as the idea is important. And the, the New Testament, Jesus, Peter, Paul, all the authors of Scripture will have nothing to do with a way of thinking like that. Jesus was a real historical person, and if he was not, we have nothing upon which to base our faith. Sentimentality and a, and a nice thought don't do us anything when it comes to eternity and standing before the judgment seat of God. Jesus was from a real and verifiable place, the town of Nazareth. The people who were listening to Peter this day, they knew where Nazareth was. They knew all about Nazareth. It was a real city in Israel, and Jesus was from there. That's why they call him Jesus of Nazareth. But not only that, Jesus performed many miracles to the glory of God, and even his opponents would not deny that he had done mighty works. I mean, even, even the Pharisees were like, we can't deny that he's done this. But they still hated him. But they would acknowledge that Jesus was doing mighty works. They saw him do it. The people did. The people who were hearing, if they weren't there personally, they knew people who had been there. So again, he was a real historical person who did real miracles in history. And at the beginning of verse 23, we see he was really put to death on a Roman cross. And again, no one in the audience that day especially would dispute that. They knew, they knew Jesus had been crucified. It was the talk of the town, the talk of the nation. This rabbi from Nazareth was finally put to death. The, the leaders got him and they had him crucified. And it's one of those things that seems obvious. One of the most historically obvious facts about Jesus was that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But if you ever talk with a Muslim, be ready to, to be surprised when they say, no, Jesus really wasn't crucified. Somebody else was crucified in his place. Jesus was taken by Allah up to heaven. They don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. And if he didn't die on the cross, we have no Christianity, folks. Um, so against Islam, we present historical evidence that both the Bible and non-biblical sources will testify. He really died on the cross. He was crucified in real historical events. I don't want to spend all my time there, but I think that is important to mention that first Peter shows that Jesus was real and historical. His next emphasis, his second emphasis is this, is that Jesus was crucified and killed. Again, it's pretty simple. We understand this. You know, if we've been at all raised in the church, we understand the importance of the crucifixion. But Peter talks about this in a very particular way, and I want to spend some time unpacking this. And when we think that Jesus was crucified and killed, we need to understand that the death of Jesus was the plan of God. 
The death of Jesus was the plan of God. Look again at verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan of God means God had an intentional purpose in the death of Jesus. The foreknowledge of God means that God was thoroughly acquainted with the details of his plan. Let's think about that a little more in depth. The definite plan of God. That, that's a, a weighty phrase. It can be a controversial phrase. I don't think it needs to. If we just let Scripture be Scripture and we submit to it, then we should rejoice in whatever it clearly teaches. And what, what basically what Peter is saying is that the death of Jesus was no accident. And it wasn't some tragedy that thankfully God was somehow able to bring good out of it. We have to understand that God did not form his plan because of the cross. We don't want to be backwards in this. He didn't form his plan because he understood that somehow the cross was going to happen. No, God formed his plan and the cross was at the center of his plan. That might seem like being nitpicky, but it's actually very, very crucial. The cross was not some second plan B response to a plan A that went wrong. The cross was plan A from the beginning. That's why Peter can say this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite or certain plan of God. The second thing he says, though, not only was it the definite plan of God, it was according to the foreknowledge of God. That's another controversial term, one I hope through what we're looking at today, we'll maybe clear some things up if you have some difficulty thinking on this. Foreknowledge, I just want to say at the outset, is not the same thing as foresight. There's a big difference. There's a difference in the Greek language. There's a difference in, if we're going to be honest with the American language, there's a difference there too. And the reason I say that, especially in the Greek, is because the word for foresight is actually used in verse 31. When he talks about David being a prophet that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Galatians, I think it's 3 or 2, talks about the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. There's a different word for foresaw than foreknowledge. And so we can't, when we think of foreknowledge, think foresight. It's not merely foresight, but it is a, a thorough and intimate, detailed knowledge based on his own perfect and unchanging plan. When we think of the cross then being foreknown, hold your place here in Acts. I want to go back to a very, very well-known, well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 53. This is one we can never read too much. Isaiah 53 verses 2 through 12. And again, just, just think Peter's language. He's not making this up. Think of, of what Isaiah says here, and, and there, there is no way that this is just God knowing ahead of time, having foresight of what's going to happen. Think intimate, thorough, detailed plan and knowledge, understanding, comprehension of what God is going to do. God has that. Listen to this, and then think of the death of Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And catch the intention, the purpose here. Not reaction, but purpose. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is one of the most startling statements in all of the Bible. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, the Messiah, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Again, before it happens, he will bear their iniquities. That is intention, that is purpose, that is a plan. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, foreknowledge is not merely foresight. It is a thorough and intimate knowledge that God has of his own plan. God knows what he has planned and his knowledge is perfect and his perfect knowledge has been perfect from before the beginning of time. That's why it's called foreknowledge. He knows it beforehand. Romans 8.29 uses this word, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, foreknew there is the same root word that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2. And it's not talking about just seeing ahead of time, but an intimate acquaintance with even setting a love upon, choosing even. When you think Adam knew Eve, it's not just he knew about her. He had an intimate acquaintance with her. God says, Israel, you alone have I known among all the nations, meaning I have set my love on you. I have chosen you. I have set my affection on you that I have not set on others. 1 Peter 1.20 speaks of Christ being foreknown before the foundation of the world. And again, we dare not say that God looked ahead and said, oh, I didn't know Jesus was going to be crucified, but now I see that he will be. That's not what he's saying. I'm not trying to be snarky with that. But God didn't look ahead and say, that's what's going to happen, as though he had to learn that. No, he knew Christ was going to be crucified because that was his plan from the beginning. And so this makes us ask a question when we think about the foreknowledge of God and the way that, that Peter's talking here about the definite plan of God. What shall we do with the very biblical doctrines? On one hand, the sovereignty of God, and on the other hand, the responsibility of man. Let me just say clearly that the Bible is very comfortable stating and emphasizing both. The Bible is not perturbed 
It's not upset. It doesn't lose sleep at night because it has within it the sovereignty of God and human freedom and responsibility. The Bible is not confused on that. We are the ones who get confused. I will say I think it's clear that the stronger emphasis in Scripture is on the sovereignty of God. And that is a right and a good emphasis. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon that he preached on Psalm 46 in June of 1735, this is what he said, and it relates to what we're talking about. He said, In that he is God, he will be sovereign and will act as such. He sits on the throne of his sovereignty, and his kingdom ruleth over all. There is no such thing as frustrating or baffling or undermining God's designs. For he is great in counsel and wonderful in working. His counsel shall stand, and he will do all his good pleasure. The title of that sermon is The Sole Consideration That God is God, Sufficient to Still All Objections. It's a great sermon and a great point. So even with such a real and strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Scripture nowhere teaches that this somehow lessens human responsibility. Scripture nowhere teaches that because God is sovereign, somehow we're no longer responsible, that we're like robots and that we don't make choices and that our choices don't matter. Scripture never says that. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are all fully responsible for all of our actions, all of our choices, and that we are fully accountable to God for them. I mean, just look at verse 23 back in our text. After saying one of the strong, making one of the strongest statements he can make about the sovereignty of God, he, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The very next thing out of Peter's mouth is what? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look at verses 37 and 38. This is the response. It says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, What? Repent and be baptized. He's calling them to do something in response. And look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So Peter, understanding that God is absolutely sovereign, still urges earnestly people to respond properly to the message. So yes, God is sovereign, man is responsible, but the Bible has no room for any view of human freedom and responsibility that it's in some way able to frustrate or thwart God's plans and purposes. God is never because of us wringing His hands up in heaven, wishing there was more He could do. The Bible presents a completely different picture of a God who has the ability to accomplish everything that pleases him. And so the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And wicked people willingly and freely killed Jesus. And yet what they did was exactly what God had planned. It's okay to be comfortable with an element of mystery in the Christian faith. Not that there's a mystery in God's mind. God comprehends this. God gets it. It's not confusing to him. But it's okay if it is to us, and it's okay to acknowledge that there's some things we might not be able to make full sense of until we are in the presence of God one day. 
That's a good place to be. So in proclaiming the Messiah, Peter showed first that Jesus was real and historical. He showed second that Jesus was crucified and killed. And now lastly, third, he shows that Jesus was resurrected and exalted. Let's read again, beginning in verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for death for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus' resurrection was inevitable because of who he was. Peter says here clearly it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death couldn't keep its hold on Jesus. Um, It might be a little silly, but this whole idea of impossibility rings very true if you're a Georgia fan right now. Jerry made mention of it, but I'll make a little more. Um, Georgia, not just the Bulldogs, but the Falcons and the Braves, hopefully this year will be different. Um, We just have this inability to win championships. And it doesn't matter how earnest we are. It doesn't matter how hard we cheer, how much of ourselves we pour into this thing we call Georgia sports. We, we just can't seem to do it. And yesterday was a perfect example of that. If you happen to follow uh, college football, you know, as it always is, the Bulldogs, they get your hopes up for two quarters and then they cut your legs out from under you the second half. We thought we had Alabama beaten. And it was not to be. I think Nick Saban had a plot to uh, fake Corona so he could come back and get his team motivated. I don't think that's true, but it's fun to believe that. But it seems impossible that Georgia will ever beat Alabama, that they'll ever get another national championship, or that if you like the NFL, that the Falcons will ever get a Super Bowl. Y'all saw what the Patriots did to them a few years ago, and it was uh, disheartening, to say the least. It seems impossible Okay, Um, but when it comes to something a little more serious, actually a lot more, when we think of conquering death from a human perspective, it seems absolutely impossible, like it couldn't happen. It seems like there's no way. Scientifically, we don't know how to raise people from the dead, um, and and, you know, from a pure scientist, scientific perspective, how is it possible for someone to be actually, truly, fully dead three days, and then they come back to life? It doesn't seem possible. But Peter says that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus. God raised him up. 
God raised him up. That's why I say Jesus' resurrection was inevitable because of who he is. I mean, think about it. He was righteous and innocent in and of himself. He never sinned. He never did wrong. The, the death he died was not because of his own sin, but because of the sin of those that he was representing. He took other people's sin on himself and became a sinner in God's eyes, suffering the penalty that they deserved to suffer. But it wasn't his own sin. And so once he had suffered that penalty, that the, the, the penalty of death being fully satisfied, Jesus couldn't stay dead. He was innocent and righteous. The state brought about by that penalty could not hold him. But even more, his resurrection was according to Scripture. I mean, we know 1 Corinthians 15. He was, this is, I'm going to forget it now, um, he, he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose from the grave on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus' resurrection was promised beforehand by God in the Bible. Peter quotes directly two texts and he alludes to at least one more. The first one he quotes, and just, if you have your, your Bibles, anything like mine, it's actually got, it's kind of in parentheses, it looks more poetic. It's because he's quoting Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Now, it's interesting, if you go back and you read in your Psalms, um, in your Bible, that's going to be based on the Hebrew translation. Peter is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So there's a little bit different language and wording, but it's essentially saying the exact same thing. And this is what he says. This is verse 25 through 28. He says, this is David speaking. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, have, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, you get to verse 29, and Peter makes one of the most obvious statements you can make. And one of the things I stress to my students um, in class is that sometimes the most obvious truths are the ones that are most necessary. We can pass over the obvious and think, well, everybody gets that. Everybody gets that. Why even mention that? But what does Peter say? He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. That might actually have gotten a chuckle out of some people because it's like, everybody knows David's dead. There's no disputing this. He's been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. They even, at the time, knew where his tomb was. So it's like, Peter, why are you stating the obvious? Well, verse 30, he answers. It says, being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, the, the import of this, the impact of this, is this. David, if you read Psalm 16 just on its own, it might seem like he's just talking about himself. And so Peter is sitting there saying, you know what? David is still dead. His body is decayed, long decayed. So what are we to do with Psalm 16? And that's where we understand a trajectory of the Bible 
towards the coming of the Messiah, the coming of someone who's going to undo everything that's wrong. There's this hope that pervades all of Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis 3, of God sending a seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent and undo the disastrous consequences of sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And so even as David writes this, he has that in his mind. He knows that promise. He knows that that trajectory towards the coming of the Messiah. And so David understands. He might not understand it to the detail that we do now that Christ has come, but he foretold that one of his descendants would die but somehow then conquer death. That's the significance of what he's saying here. David, according to Peter, understood prophetically that someone, one of his descendants, would conquer death and win that opportunity to dwell in the presence of God forever. David knew not just the promise of a coming Redeemer, but that through his own lineage, through his own descendants, that Redeemer was going to come. He knew that was going to happen from his own descendants, one of his sons or grandsons or great-grandsons. He was going to be the one who would rule the world in God's stead. And so David, writing Psalm 16, understands, understands that whoever this one is, he is going to conquer death. God won't let him see corruption. He won't let him see this decay that would set in when the body is in the ground for many days. And that's exactly what he says in verse 31. He spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus was not in the grave long enough for corruption to take hold of him. Yes, he died. But as we said, death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Psalm 16 is true first in Jesus. And then, by God's grace, if we're a believer, it's true for us. See, we, we come into this eternal life, this being in the presence of God, being full of gladness in the presence of God, if we're in Jesus. I've mentioned it before, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now, but the whole doctrine of union with Christ, when we are united to Christ by faith, we enter into all that He has accomplished. His favor with God becomes our favor with God. His obedience to God is credited as our obedience to God. His death is counted as our death, and so many other things. We enter into all the benefits that Jesus Himself experiences, and one of those is immediate access to the presence of God. Immediate access. So this is a promise for believers. If you're a Christian here today, because of your faith in Jesus, you are guaranteed joy forever in the presence of God. You think about that. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a silly illustration, but if, if I had a line, you could have one little blip here, like this is your life now, and imagine a line that goes forever in this direction without stopping. This is your life now. This is everything after in the presence of God if you're a believer unending forever. And that's what David is saying. Jesus secured first for himself and then secondarily for his people. The next scripture that he quotes is Psalm 110 verse 1. Look at verse 34 and 35. 
Actually, let's go back to verse 33. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's referencing tongues again. And he says, verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God is the fulfillment of God's promise to David of setting one of his descendants on his throne. Because go back, look at verse 30 again. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, this is Psalm 132 that he's quoting, by the way, or alluding to, that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. So God had promised David, like we said, that one of his sons would rule on his throne over the whole world. And David, Peter here is now saying, it wasn't David who went into heaven for this, but in quoting Psalm 110, he's talking about the Messiah who is Christ, who is Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus rose from the dead, that wasn't the end. As we've looked at, he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God to a place of unimaginably great authority and power. I believe it's Ephesians 1 says that he's talking, Paul is writing there saying, you know, the, the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And listen to this, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that was named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is no higher place of authority that anyone can have than Jesus himself has. And that is the very authority that God had intended for his human king from David's line to have. And now Jesus being both God and man, unites the rule of God and the rule of the Messiah in himself. And so seated at the right hand of God, he is making his enemies his footstool, even as we speak. And that's why he concludes, Peter does here, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, three simple emphasis, emphases that Peter gives. One, Jesus was real and historical. Number two, he was crucified and killed. And three, he was resurrected and exalted. A few points of application as we, as we close. First one, going all the way back to verse 22, is simply this. Know the people that we preach the gospel to. It's not a point I lingered on. But think about who Peter's preaching to. He identifies them twice, if not more, men of Israel. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know. He knows the people he's preaching to, and he's able to communicate the gospel to them very effectively because he knows them. Um, I, I've said it before, and it's probably not a direct quote, but I think it was Francis Schaeffer was asked the question, if you had an hour to spend with somebody, um, to preach the gospel to them, what would you do during that time? And he'd say, I'd spend the first 55 minutes getting to know them. And then I'd use the last five to speak the gospel. Because he understood, like, if, if, if we're not connecting, if there's not an understanding passing back and forth, the gospel is not going to be clear. 
Think about how Paul preached in Acts chapter 17 when he's in the city of Athens. He doesn't preach the sermon that Peter preached here. He preaches to a people who are unfamiliar with the gospel. And so he starts from the ground up that there is one God who made all things. And, and, he, and, he, and he gets to them by saying, you are accountable to this God whom you don't know, even though you think you might know him with this altar to an unknown God. Paul's approach in Athens is vastly different from Peter's approach here. He's preaching the same Jesus and the same gospel, but he knows his audience. And it's very important for us to know who we're preaching to. Get to know people. And this matters because if you're like me, so much of my training in evangelism when I was a new believer was just cold turkey. Go up to people you don't know. Here's a track. Do you know Jesus? You need to repent right now. And God saves through that, okay? God has saved many people that way. But in the biggest sense, that's not the best way to do it. Get to know people. Know where they're coming from so that you can speak the gospel to them in a way that is understandable. Again, not the main point, but I think it's important. Peter knew who he was preaching to, and he knew how to, how to word it because he knew them. Number two, center on the message of the gospel, not on miraculous signs. Center on the message of the gospel, not miraculous signs. Again, I've already said this. It was not the miracle of tongues, but the message of the gospel that was so important. That is what convicts people. That is what convicts people. Christ crucified and resurrected for us in our salvation, that is what we center on. That is what we major on. And that leads into the next point. A person's genuine response of faith and repentance comes not from seeing signs, but from hearing God's message. Look at verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this. When they heard this. Not when they saw not when they were astonished at the languages that were being spoken. When they heard what? Je Peter just said, he has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard the message, when the message was explained, that's when their hearts, when they were cut to the heart and they cry out, what shall we do? Faith and repentance comes not from seeing signs, but from hearing God's message. And the last one, that I'll close with is simply this. We must exhort unbelievers to respond in repentance and faith. That's what Peter does in verse 38. That's what he does again in verse 40, calling his hearers to respond to the gospel. And that's how I want to end. If you are here and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, this real and historical figure who really did miraculous things, who was really crucified, really rose from the dead, who is right now seated at the right hand of God. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will bring you into the family of God if you will turn from your rebellion against God and place your faith and your trust in Him. It is the most urgent thing you can do. Nothing matters more than this if you are an unbeliever. Trusting in Christ, clinging to Christ as your only hope, that is what you must do before you do anything else. And for the rest of us, let's remember, but fellow Christians, we never move beyond the need to repent. We have sin every day. So let's repent of it. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's find forgiveness again in Him and find that He is always ready and willing to forgive. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how clear it is. God, thank You for a Savior who is real. Thank you for a Savior who died for us, who rose from the grave for us. 
that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that we might come back to you. Yes, he is the Lord. He is the sovereign king, the one who is seated at your right hand. But Lord Jesus, we know you have your arms stretched open wide, inviting all to come. And Lord, however that response, whatever that response needs to be for each one of us, grant us the grace even now to call out to you and respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.